Chapter thirty two of the Circular Staircase. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Skillen. The Circular Staircase by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter thirty two Anne Watson's Story. Liddy discovered the fresh break in the trunk-room wall while we were at luncheon, and ran shrieking down the stairs. She maintained that, as she had entered, unseen hands had been digging at the plaster, that they'd stopped when she went in, and she'd felt a gust of cold, damp air. In support of her story, she carried in my wet and muddy boots that I'd unluckily forgotten to hide, and held them out to the detective and myself. "'What did I tell you?' she said dramatically. "'Look at them. "'They're yours, Miss Rachel, and covered with mud and soaked to the tops. "'I tell you, you can scoff all you like. "'Something's been wearing your shoes. "'As sure as you sit there, there's the smell of the graveyard on them. "'How do we know they weren't tramping through the Casanova churchyard last night "'and sitting in the graves?' "'Mr. Jameson almost choked to death.' "'I wouldn't be at all surprised if they were doing that very thing,' Liddy said, when he got his breath. "'They certainly looked like it.' I think the detective had a plan on which he was working, and which was meant to be a coup, but things went so fast there was no time to carry it into effect. The first thing that occurred was a message from the charity hospital that Mrs. Watson was dying, and had asked for me. I didn't care much about going.' There's a sort of melancholy pleasure to be had out of a funeral, with its pomp and ceremony, but I shrank from a deathbed. However, Liddy got out the black things and the crape veil I keep for such occasions, and I went. I left Mr. Jemison and the day detective going over every inch of the circular staircase, pounding, probing, and measuring. I was inwardly elated to think of the surprise I was going to give them that night. As it turned out, I did surprise them, almost into spasms. I drove from the train to the charity hospital, and was at once taken to a ward. There, in a grey-walled room and a high iron bed, lay Mrs. Watson. She was very weak, and she only opened her eyes and looked at me when I sat down beside her. I was conscience-stricken. We had been so engrossed that I had left this poor creature to die without even a word of sympathy. The nurse gave her a stimulant, and in a little while she was able to talk. So broken and half-coherent, however, was her story, that I shall tell it in my own way. In an hour from the time I entered the charity hospital, I had heard a sad and pitiful narrative, and had seen a woman slip into the unconsciousness that's only a step from death. Briefly, then, the housekeeper's story was this. She was almost forty years old, and had been the sister and mother of a large family of children. One by one they had died, and been buried beside their parents in a little town in the Middle West. There was only one sister left, the baby, Lucy. On her the older girl had lavished all the love of an impulsive and emotional nature. When Anne the elder was thirty-two and Lucy was nineteen, a young man had come to the town. He was going east after spending the summer at a celebrated ranch in Wyoming. 
one of those places where wealthy men send worthless and dissipated sons for a season of temperance, fresh air, and hunting. The sisters, of course, knew nothing of this, and the young man's ardour rather carried them away. In a word, seven years before, Lucy Haswell had married a young man whose name was given as Aubrey Wallace. Anne Haswell had married a carpenter in a native town and was a widow. For three months, everything went fairly well. Aubrey took his bride to Chicago, where they lived at a hotel. Perhaps the very unsophistication that had charmed him in Valley Mill jarred on him in the city. He had been far from a model husband, even for the three months, and when he disappeared, Anne was almost thankful. It was different with the young wife, however. She drooped and fretted, and on the birth of her baby boy, she had died. Anne took the child, and named him Lucian. Anne had no children of her own, and on Lucian she had lavished all her aborted maternal instinct. On one thing she was determined, however. That was that Aubrey Wallace should educate his boy. It was part of her devotion to the child that she should be ambitious for him. He must have every opportunity. And so she came east. She drifted around, doing plain sewing and keeping a home somewhere, always for the boy. Finally, however, she realised that their only training had been domestic, and she put the boy in an Episcopalian home and secured the position of housekeeper to the Armstrongs. There she found Lucian's father, this time under his own name. It was Arnold Armstrong. I gathered that there was no particular enmity at the time in Anne's mind, she told him of the boy and threatened exposure if he didn't provide for him. Indeed, for a time he did so. Then he realised that Lucian was the ruling passion in this lonely woman's life. He found out where the child was hidden and threatened to take him away. Anne was frantic. The positions became reversed. Where Arnold had given money for Lucian's support, as the years went on, he forced money from Anne Watson instead until she was almost penniless. The lower Arnold sank in the scale, the heavier his demands became. With the rupture between him and his family, things were worse. Anne took the child from the home and hid him in a farmhouse near Casanova on the Claysburg Road. There she went sometimes to see the boy, and there he had taken a fever. The people were Germans. He called the farmer's wife Grossmutter. He had grown into a beautiful boy, and he was all Anne had to live for. The Armstrongs left for California, and Arnold's persecutions began anew. He was furious over the child's disappearance, and she was afraid he would do her some hurt. She left the big house and went down to the lodge. When I had rented Sunnyside, however, she had thought the persecutions would stop. She had applied for the position of housekeeper and secured it. That had been on Saturday. That night, Louise arrived unexpectedly. Thomas sent for Mrs. Watson, and then went for Arnold Armstrong at the Greenwood Club. Anne had been fond of Louise. She reminded her of Lucy. She didn't know what the trouble was, but Louise had been in a state of terrible excitement. Mrs. Watson tried to hide from Arnold, but he was ugly. He left the lodge and went up to the house about 2.30, was admitted at the east entrance, and came out again very soon. Something had occurred, she didn't know what, but very soon Mr. Innes and another gentleman left using the car. 
Thomas and she had got Louise quiet, and a little before three, Mrs. Watson started up to the house. Thomas had a key to the east entry, and he gave it to her. On the way across the lawn, she was confronted by Arnold, who for some reason was determined to get into the house. He had a golf stick in his hand that he had picked up somewhere, and on her refusal, he had struck her with it. One hand had been badly cut, and it was that, poisoning having set in, which was killing her. She broke away in a frenzy of rage and fear, got upstairs into the house while Gertrude and Jack Bailey were at the front door. She went upstairs hardly knowing what she was doing. Gertrude's door was open, and Halsey's revolver lay there on the bed. She picked it up, and turning, ran part way down the circular staircase. She could hear Arnold fumbling at the lock outside. She slipped down quietly and opened the door. He was inside before she got back to the stairs. It was quite dark, but she could see his white shirt bosom. From the fourth step, she fired. As he fell, somebody in the billiard room screamed and ran. When the alarm was raised, she had no time to get upstairs. She hid in the west wing until everyone was down on the lower level. Then she slipped upstairs and threw the revolver out of the upper window, going down again in time to admit the men from the Greenwood Club. If Thomas had suspected, he never told. When she found the hand Arnold injured was growing worse, she gave the address of Lucian to the old man and almost a hundred dollars. The money was for Lucian's board until she recovered. She had sent for me to ask if I would try to interest the Armstrongs in the child. When she found herself growing worse, she had written to Mrs. Armstrong, telling her nothing but that Arnold's legitimate child was at Richfield and imploring her to recognise him. She was dying. The boy was an Armstrong and entitled to his father's share of the estate. The papers were in her trunk at Sunnyside, with letters from the dead man that would prove what she had said. She was going. She would not be judged by earthly laws, and somewhere else, Perhaps Lucy would plead for her. It was she who had crept down the circular staircase, drawn by a magnet that night. Mr. Jimison had heard someone there. Pursued, she had fled madly anywhere through the first door she came to. She had fallen down the clothes chute and been saved by the basket beneath. I could have cried with relief. Then it had not been Gertrude, after all. That was the story. Sad and tragic though it was, the very telling of it seemed to relieve the dying woman. She didn't know that Thomas was dead, and I didn't tell her. I promised to look after little Lucian, and sat with her until the intervals of consciousness grew shorter, and finally ceased altogether. She died that night. End of chapter 32 Recording by Ian Skillen